So I have a, we good, Joey? So I have a friend that's, that's in prison, just made, just made a bad mistake, you know. I call him a friend. He was a friend of me for, for, for many years, and, and I, I love him. He's a sinner like you and I, and he just, he just made a mistake, so he's serving, uh, he's serving his fifth full year of a 10-year sentence. And uh, I talked to him from time to time. He'll call me. I don't think he's supposed to, but he'll call me, and I don't know who it is on the other end, so my option is do I hang up or do I indulge? So that's a bit of an ethical dilemma that, I, that, I, that I'm in from time to time. But he'll call me, and he'll tell me stories of what it's like to be in prison and all of these things. And I like to watch prison documentaries, but there's, 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 <laughs> there's kind of a common denominator. There's a common theme amongst prisoners who write letters or who talk about what it's like to be in prison. And uh, I, those who I think would be honest, there might be some that actually like it, but I would think by and large, they don't really like being in prison. You know, there's not a, there's not a tenor of joy in the way that they talk about being in prison. There's not a tenor or, or any kind of feel or flair of joy. Maybe when they write letters, they write letters to lawyers or they try to contact their lawyer saying, get me out of here. I mean, I'll be honest, I said this two weeks ago, if I were Paul, in the situation that Paul's in under house arrest, even though he could have been in worst, a worse scenario. I mean, he was in an apartment. He was chained. He was on lockdown. There could have been worse scenarios, but he's still in prison, right? It, it may have been a far stretch from the, from the dank, nasty, musty cage that he was put in when, when everything, when the shackles fell and when all the doors opened and the guard thought he was going to die, but the guard actually uh, converted to Christ. By the, by the mercy of God and by his, by his sovereign grace. So uh, there are much worse situations that Paul could have been in, but I couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine uh, writing a letter or, or receiving a letter with a tenor of joy behind it. And that's, and that's what we get here. That's what we get. What I want to be clear, just to start this off, I want to be clear. I don't, I don't want to say that Paul was this super, super Christian, that he was something you're not, or that, you know, that, okay, he was a special type of Christian. You know, God used him in a different way, maybe, than what he'll use you. Maybe, maybe his journey, maybe his story includes imprisonment, where your story might not include imprisonment. But by and large, we're the, we're the same. You know, we're all a part of this big, grand narrative with the same calling essentially, maybe not to go to Macedonia, maybe not to go to all these places and all these separate missionary journeys, but our calling is the same. Our calling is to fight for the gospel, fight for joy, glorify God, die and go home. Our calling is to be a sojourner. That's what we are. We're sojourners. And I, and I want you to think of that because behind Paul's joy, behind all of these things, Paul has the perspective that I'm a sojourner. I'm passing through. You know, Paul's not, Paul's not, you know, building up his 401k or whatever. He's not thinking, okay, when I get through this, when I grow up, I'm going to be this. When I get past all these things, then I'm going to finally get to live my life. That's not Paul's mentality. And it shouldn't be the mentality of any believer in this room because we're sojourners. We're just passing through. Is it wrong to get a swimming pool put in your backyard? Absolutely not, especially when I'm going to use it. It's not wrong at all, but... Is that the essence of life? Not at all. Does it matter in the grand scheme of things? No, no. Do we, do, we, do we place our joy 
on those type of things, whether it's career, whether it's materials, whatever. No, not at all, because those things don't matter. We are sojourners. Those things don't last. What lasts is the legacy that you leave behind. What lasts is the work that you do for the glory of God to expand the kingdom of God. Those are the things that really lasts. And that's a part of the heart behind the joy that Paul is expressing when he writes. So essentially, it's all over the gospel. This is where and why he has his joy. And this is uncommon for a prisoner, by the way. It should be common for a prisoner of Christ because he makes it very clear, look, I'm in prison for the advancement of the gospel. It's not that, oh, I'm in prison, therefore let's make lemonade out of lemons. Well, I'm in this bad situation. Might as well do something good out of it. You know, it, that, that's fine if you're gonna be in a bad situation, but don't simply think, oh, kind of got to make something out of nothing. I mean, there's an intent and a purpose for you being in that bad situation. There just is. I mean, it's written throughout the pages of history in the argument or validating the fact that God places you in these situations, you know, for a bigger picture, for a greater purpose. We, we saw it over and over again through the book of Genesis, did we not? So I want you to have that perspective when we're considering what we see in these next few verses in Philippians 12, uh, Philippians 1, 12 through 18. So let me read this to you. I left my, my physical Bible at the house, so I'm gonna have to go back and forth. But Philippians 1, 12 through 18. Austin should have preached the two verses prior to this last week. So I wanna continue on with this. And I've been meditating on this verse all week. Been building a treehouse with my dad, but trying to think through this. Advancement of the gospel, advancement of the gospel. Not a, not a complex text. Not difficult at all. It's not one that you walk around and scratch your head as you read it thinking, okay, what does he actually mean here? I mean, it's straightforward. I'm put here in prison for the advancement of the gospel. My imprisonment has actually caused these other saints who were otherwise timid and lacking courage to be emboldened. So he's like, this is great. Later, he says, look, if I'm gonna keep living, it's gonna be for Jesus. It's gonna be for the gospel. I'm gonna keep living for the very thing that's probably gonna get me killed. Right, so, so this is Paul's mentality. I'm a sojourner, I'm passing through, and he writes this with exceeding joy. Listen to verse 12 and, and so on. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And again, he's writing to this church that's concerned about his well-being. They're concerned about the hardships that he's going through. They're probably, honestly, like a mom, a Christian mom who has sent their kid off to Zimbabwe, Africa, 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 or some, or some Muslim-type country where they're volatile towards Christianity, and a mom is concerned. And if a mom is not careful, or a dad for that matter, if a mom or a dad is not careful, they, they end up in this land of distrust. If a mom and dad is not careful, sometimes they say, no, 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 you, you can't go. You can't do that. Because they don't have the sojourner mentality. No, 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 you need to be somewhere safe. Why would you ever go to this place? Well, because they need the gospel. That's not thinking like a sojourner. That's thinking as though this is our permanent residence, as though this is what God has made for us to reside on forever. And I get it, new heavens, new earth, and all that stuff, but, but this isn't the finished version, right? We're meant for the finished version. We're not meant for the broken, fallen version of it. So he says, I want you to know, brothers, as you're concerned about me, you're concerned for my well-being, that what has happened has served to advance the gospel. So you should celebrate what I'm going through. This should be good news for you because the Lord sees fit to, the Lord saw fit to put me here so that these things might happen where otherwise it might have happened differently. And God always does the 
best scenario. He knows all scenarios immediately. He doesn't have to rationalize. He doesn't have to think through all the possible scenarios because there could have been a billion different scenarios, okay? For, for the Ellers to adopt children from the Ukraine, there could have been a million families that would have adopted you, but God sovereignly ordained that it was the Ellers who were the best possible fit for you for whatever this grand narrative will reveal for you. So even stuff like that is a tremendous encouragement that God knows every possible scenario and he ensures the best possible scenario comes to pass. He doesn't leave anything to chance. Listen to what Paul says in verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of my brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here, again, I am put here for a reason, not by happenstance, but I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. And just, let me just say this as an aside. God's favor towards you, God's love for you, God's plan for you, uh, or let me just say God's, God's favor for you and his love for you is not indicated when things are, is not indicated by the times when things are good. Okay, okay, I'm not in prison. I've got a good job. I've got a steady, steady paycheck. God has favored me. Oh, God is good. God is good. And we'd like to say that as a culture. God is good because things are happening that are good. I read on Facebook the other day a family friend of ours that got a job. And praise the Lord that she got the job that she was wanting. God is so good. God is blessing me. And that is absolutely right. But that's not the determining factor of God's love. Jesus is, Right? So we have to be careful because we can slip into this weird doctrinal position that really creates a one-dimensional kind of favoritism of God. And, and then it basically leads its way to prosperity gospel, that the evidence of God's love is how he's blessing you with stuff, with materials. And that's in no way, shape, or form the exclusive way that God shows his love. The exclusive evidence of God's love is Jesus. I mean, that's, that's it. And then there's all these things that come as a result. God is showing his love not just for people because he's causing people to come to himself through the advancement of the gospel, but God is ultimately showing his love for his glory. And you have to understand that you and I are sojourners and we are a part of a grand puzzle. I mean, we are infinitesimal. We are something to God, but as Isaiah said, we are drops in a bucket. In a certain way, we are insignificant compared to God and what he's doing. So if you die for the sake of the gospel, consider yourself blessed because if God is doing that, he's doing it for gospel advancement. He's doing it so that others will take notice and that things may happen as far as the kingdom as a result of your sacrifice because God is bringing glory to himself. I mean, that's the way this operates. So Paul says in verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my punishment. So you've got these who are actually teaching something that's right, but their motives are all messed up. Their motives are all bad. It would be like if I, or if anybody in a teaching or preaching position was really wanting just to be thought of as this super smart theologian and they get the gospel right, but they don't necessarily care if you submit yourself to it or if it affects you or if it's advanced among you or beyond them. They don't care about that. They want to be heralded as someone who is eloquent. They want to be heralded as someone who knows their stuff. And so the motives are bad. Now, do you want a pastor like that? No. 
But Paul says here, hey, if that does happen, I'm still gonna rejoice because the power of the gospel is not contingent on the messenger, but the message itself. And so a very simple, simple text. So that's the text. That's, that's what's happening here. So what I wanna do is just take a few minutes to show Paul's reasons for joy. And there's probably more in this text that, that, that someone could, could see better than myself, but I just have four reasons that I think Paul is, is overjoyed. Now, we can make a blanket statement and say his joy is rooted in the gospel. Absolutely, absolutely. But I wanna detail it a little bit more than that. Okay, I wanna express it a little bit more. I wanna move beyond, um, beyond, beyond the, just the surface explanation. Oh, it's the gospel, but why? And what does that mean? And how is that fleshed out? So, so here's reason number one for Paul's joy. Okay, and you can see this in the text. You can follow along with me. Let me read verses 12 and 13 to you first so that you can have it in your mind. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So reason number one for Paul's joy. Paul is joyous in writing this letter because any attempts, and this is beautiful, any attempts to suppress the gospel do nothing but further the gospel. Any attempts to suppress the gospel only serves to advance the gospel. And that is fantastic how that works because the enemy hates the gospel and he wants to suppress the gospel. But what generally happens, and I'm not saying there aren't those circumstances where, uh, where you have a church over in China that's being persecuted. Now, the, the thing we like to talk about is how the, the persecuted church thrives. And there are many, many, many occasions where the persecuted church does thrive in that persecution. But there are also, unfortunately, many circumstances and scenarios where the church doesn't thrive. Maybe the church goes further into hiding. Maybe they become, they disband out of fear. It doesn't make them less a church. But the scenario is not always. But I think the general rule of thumb is that when the enemy tries to suppress the gospel, what it does is generally it serves to advance the gospel. And that's definitely what's happening here. Clearly, that's what's happening here. But this is interesting. Because although God ordains and God calls this to happen, let me get a little bit theological with you and give you some examples of what I mean. There's basically two actions or one action that's taking place here, but although there's one action, there's two intentions. So in your mind, go with me back to Genesis, to the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph is sold into slavery. Joseph finds these hardships, and we talked about this in Genesis. Now, I know that that was a year and a half or something like that ago, but Joseph is sold into slavery. Joseph is a man of God. Joseph trusts God. He pursues God. He's sold into slavery. He ends up at the Potiphar's house. And when he's at Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife comes on to him and tries to get him to lie with her, to have inappropriate relations with him. And she's a married woman. And he runs from her. She grabs a hold of his cloak and he literally runs out naked, the Bible says. And then, of course, they're going to believe Potiphar's wife because she's, uh, she's a woman of repute in the area, whether it be ill or good, I don't know. But they're going to listen to her over this slave. So Joseph is then placed in prison. And he goes through this for years of his life until finally we see what God is doing, okay? We have the benefit of hindsight, and that is that Joseph was being brought to Egypt so that he could essentially be one of the primary leaders of Egypt to watch over God's people. So God is moving and he's doing, but the interesting thing over there in chapter 50, 51, 52, I can't remember exactly, 
God makes an interesting statement, or Moses makes an interesting statement. He says what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. He didn't say what Satan meant for evil, God used for good, because that's different. Okay, so if Satan meant something and God used it, that means, okay, God was kind of hands off and these things happen and God kind of has to make lemonade out of lemons. That's not what happened. What happened was God intended, God providentially worked in order to bring about the big narrative in order to bring about his own glory. So he places Joseph in the scenarios and the circumstances that Joseph was in for this purpose. Now, Satan is also working because Satan hates the trajectory that, the life, that life is going. He hates what, what God is doing. So Satan is also active working. So there's one action that takes place, being Joseph going through the hardship that he goes through, going through the crucible that he goes through, and then it ending up what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. So everything that God is doing is always for good. So that's absolutely true. And we can go through examples. We can talk about Daniel as he's thrown into the lion's den. God shut the mouths of the lions so that they would not attack him. You better believe that Satan had something to do with that, even though it doesn't say what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. I think it's safe to assume that Satan was involved and he wanted Daniel to die because Daniel was faithful to his God. When everybody else prayed to something else, Daniel prayed to his God with the windows open so that the whole world could see unashamedly faithful to his God. Jesus was handed over to be scourged and crucified. Do you not think that Satan really rallied behind that? Do you not think that Satan really wanted to see Jesus done with and not be resurrected? But the scripture says that he was handed over to be scourged and crucified according to what God's hand and plan had predestined to occur. So God's definitely involved in that as well. So this is the theology behind what's happening to Paul. This is why, based on scriptural evidence, why we can look at this and say, Paul's here and he's placed here by God. Satan, I'm sure, had a hand in something, wanting to suppress the gospel, but the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. The keys of the kingdom were given and the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. So there's one action, there's two intentions. One action to suppress the gospel, the other is to advance the gospel. So the gospel is being advanced in and through Paul's imprisonment. And listen, listen to the extent of this, and, and you, you probably wouldn't know this unless you read ahead, but if you move over to Philippians 4.22, you don't have to look at that, I'll read it for you. But what's interesting is it says in Philippians 4.22, it shows you the extent. So let me explain, let me back up and explain a little bit of what's happening. When Paul is in prison, this is, uh, your, your, your scripture may say the Praetorian guard, uh, it might say the imperial guard, that's what the ESV says. Either way, same thing. Basically what's happening is these were the guard of guards. These were Pharaoh's guards, and they wanted to muzzle Paul. They didn't want him to speak anymore about this. So around the clock, these imperial guards, or the emperor's guards, sorry, not Pharaoh's, the emperor's guards, around the clock, they would, they would come in and they would sit with Paul. Okay, now we, he was in an apartment, so there was a sense of freedom there, but then again, there was not. Because these men, I'd heard certain scholars say that they were chained to Paul, just in case they're chained to him. And so they would take these shifts and they would come in, they would change themselves to Paul and Paul could move around the apartment and they would probably have to move with him. I don't know how long the chain was. Either way, they're chained to him. But the point is so that they could keep a close eye on him. And I heard one pastor say, what do you think the conversation was like when Paul would speak to these guards? What do you think he talked about? The weather? (laughs) The, the, the shifting culture of Rome. 
you know, the, 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 the decor. Let's listen to this in chapter. This is how he's leaving the, he's leaving the letter. In verse 21, it says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with you or with me greet you. All the saints greet you, and listen to this, especially those of Caesar's household. How do you think that got to Caesar's household? Because these imperial guards belong to Caesar. So he's sharing the gospel. The gospel is even advancing through the guards, the very ones that were there to ensure that he is muzzled, that his mouth is shut. And so they can't help but go and talk about the things that they're hearing from Paul. They're going to Caesar's house and they're talking about it. And then they're wanting to send greetings to the church at Philippi. I mean, it's a crazy backward situation that you can only explain it by saying, see what God's doing here? God is showing that, listen, it's not about the messenger, but about the message. You can try to suppress the gospel, but what happens is it advances the gospel because the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I loved finding that. I loved looking ahead and, and, and seeing that. It was, it's just so, it's, it's almost comical to me. You know, it's almost characteristic of God's sense of humor. Think about, okay, these big, these big dudes that you're gonna use to shut Paul up are, sending greetings to the church. <laughs> They're having, you know, tea and crumpets with, with Paul and, and talking about the gospel. You know, it's, 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 an interesting, it's an interesting scenario to me. So that's reason number one for Paul's joy. And, and that is that any attempt to suppress the gospel only serves to advance the gospel. Again, think about it as, as, as a sojourner. Think about it from Paul's perspective, not the way that we live, because we, let's, let's be honest with ourselves, at least I'll be honest with myself, I don't live as a sojourner. I'm thinking towards the future. I'm thinking, well, I've got, you know, so many years of life left, man, I've got to get my affairs in order. I've got to get this. And you know what? Sometimes at the bottom of that list is the gospel. Well, if I get my, if I get my IRA where it needs to be, if I get, you know, all of these things where they need to be, then, then, then I can really start kind of focusing on those things. That's not a sojourner. That's someone who treats life as if this is all there is, if this is permanent. And the outside world looks in and they see it of Christians all the time. It looks like we live for this world alone and not what's to come, not what's prepared for us. As if there's not an inheritance that is waiting for us that, that is so much better than what we've compiled for ourselves here. And I think it's an indictment on Christianity. They should look at us and say, man, you live for then. You live for that day. But I don't think they say that, especially of myself. And so this is very convicting for me. But Paul, as a sojourner, was like, you know, whatever happens. I mean, you see it in the writing. You know, to live as Christ, to die is gain. I'm a sojourner. Who cares? You know, he even says, you know what? He says, so what? What then? You know, if they're preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, they're preaching without sincerity, so what? As long as Christ is preached, because that's my job. You know, Paul's getting creative. He's like, as long as it gets the job done, as long as the, because he knows man is, is infinitesimal and man has no power to affect any change. He's like, look, even if the scum of the earth gets up there and they're talking truth, it's the truth that changes, not the messenger. And I'm gonna go ahead and jump ahead to a little bit of application and go ahead and prepare your minds to say, this should bring you joy as someone who's given the responsibility of carrying the gospel to all your friends and all your family. And what this does, and you may not like this, what this does is it kind of erases the sentiment that some of us share and say, well, I don't feel like I know enough or I don't feel like I can speak with enough clarity. People that say that, what they're doing is they're, 
putting all their eggs in their own baskets of eloquence. They're saying, well, I have to be clear enough. And they're reducing the gospel to something that is only as powerful as the messenger. Paul wasn't special in the fact that because he spoke it, things happened. It was the message of the gospel that was powerful. That's why Paul can rejoice. So that's the first reason. I think there's another reason. There's another reason that Paul was joyful in this letter, and it was because what was meant to cripple the saints with fear has instead given confidence to them to share the message. It's given confidence to them to share the message. I mean, the scripture says, look at again in verse 14. In 14 it says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Implying that they were fearful from the very beginning. I mean, who in here has not been fearful to share before? I mean, if you're a normal human being, you know, I'm sure that you've seen these opportunities come up and maybe you're a little fearful, maybe you're a little timid for whatever reason. Reasons that I've already listed. Maybe you don't think that you can kind of uh, be clear enough. Maybe you're worried that they're gonna have a volatile response or reaction. You know, maybe you're concerned about those things. But all of us has probably experienced some kind of timidity or some kind of fear and trepidation when it comes to having these kind of discussions. Maybe we're afraid of confrontation. I know Kaufman's not, but a lot of us are afraid of, <laughs> of confrontation, right? We don't like to get into confrontation. Oh my goodness, they might, they might challenge my belief. They might get angry with me. It is funny to me that if somebody's house was on fire, you wouldn't worry about that conflict, right? If someone was about to step on a copperhead snake, you wouldn't worry about that conflict, would you? You wouldn't think, well, they might not like that. You know, what convicts me is that I, I wholeheartedly believe, I wholeheartedly believe that those who are not in Christ are going to face a far worse fate than a house that burns down or a snake that bites them on the ankle. I really believe that there's something much worse in store for those that are outside of Christ. But sometimes I shy away from giving the warning from that than any other scenario where I could give a warning. And that convicts me. And I don't know why other than I'm a sinner and I'm weak and I'm a coward sometimes. Because what, what can somebody do to me? My wife says, what can they do to you, kill you? I'm like, well, that stinks. <laughs> yeah, they can kill me, kind of what I'm avoiding right now because I don't think like a sojourner. That's what happens, I don't think like a sojourner. Now, I'm not saying, let me step aside here, this is what I'm not saying. This is, I don't want you to take this snippet of pastoral wisdom. I'm not saying go play chicken and Russian roulette, metaphorically speaking, in a spiritual sense. Don't go to gangbangers and those pointing guns in your face, you know, and just saying, well, I forgot. Use some wisdom and discretion, you know. Yes, give the gospel. If God tells you to do that, do that as well. But, uh, but the whole guns blazing, you know, throw my life in all, the, in all the danger. Just use wisdom and see where God's leading and all that stuff. So do what you will with that. I'm not I'm not saying be careless with your life, you know. Let God be the one that's gonna determine whether your life ends or not. Don't rush to have it taken from you. So what was meant to cripple the saints with fear has instead given confidence to share the message of Christ. The text implies timidity among the saints. Persecution has a way of emboldening people. It's weird how that works. I don't know if the word is counterintuitive, but it's, it's like it should cause us to fear. Suppressing the gospel should cause us to fear. I mean, that was the intent, I think, of the Romans. You know, hey, these churches, the saints, as long as they keep their mouths shut, 
we'll be okay with him. We gotta get their ringleader and we gotta suppress him. We gotta muzzle him so that all this nonsense will stop and it didn't work. They thought maybe if they see this with Paul all the way to his death, including his death, maybe if, they, maybe if the onlookers will see that their father in the faith, so to speak, the one who planted that church, maybe they'll see, and there were, there were, there were other churches, maybe they'll see it, maybe it'll give them fear. It doesn't work like that, though. In a lot of cases, probably most cases, persecution has a way of emboldening those who are otherwise timid. Let me just let me let me give you some examples and see what kind of stirring this 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 causes within you. Mary Durand, a lady I shared about years uh, a few years back, arrested in 1730 and locked away in the Tower of Constance for 38 years. There's a lot of details of this story that I won't share again. But she's taken away from her husband. She's taken away from her family. I don't know if there were children involved, but she's taken away from everybody that she knows and that she loved. She was locked away in this tower, and for 38 years, they said, just renounce your faith. Just recant. Suffering the worst of conditions. Awful. For 38 years with other women. And she encouraged them all the while. She prayed with them. She sang songs. She read the scriptures to them. She prayed with them. She sang songs with them for 38 years, encouraging the women that would to resist, to stand firm, because she's locked away for being a Christian. And on that cell, towering above the ground, carved into the stone on the wall is the word resister, which I believe is French for resist. French, I think. Which is a testimony of Mary Duran's faithfulness to Christ. But I hear this story and I'm like, that emboldens me. It challenges me. It grips me. Polycarp refused to burn incense to the Roman emperor and was burned at the stake because he wouldn't perform that act of worship. William Tyndale in the 1600s translated the Bible into English, so you should be thankful for Tyndale, by the way. A reformer who stood against the teachings of the Catholic Church and he was choked to death while tied to the stake and then after that they burned him just to make just to make a statement to others who would oppose the Catholic Church. Jim Elliott and four missionary colleagues of his were killed at the end of a spear by the, uh, by the Aka, I don't know how that's said, the Aka Indians in Ecuador. The men who were trying to finally make contact to reach the tribe with the gospel were slaughtered, slaughtered by these tribesmen, slaughtered. Consequently, rather than succumbing to the fear of losing their own lives, the widows of those four men, or five men, continued the effort started by their husbands and eventually reached the tribe with the gospel. So let me just give you this here. Their husbands have died. They fly over this tribe time and time again for months. They fly over, they're dropping supplies to try to make some kind of nonverbal connection with these tribesmen cannibalistic tribesmen, very, uh, I, th- I think very warrior-based, warrior mentality, just a, a ruthless tribe that just didn't have the gospel. So they thought, well, that's where we need to be. <laughs> Large potential for death, that's where we're going. Talk about that 1040 window. You know, this is where we're headed, right? So they fly over, they make all these drops, and the people come and they receive the drops. It's goods, you know, food, probably some, uh, uh, some, some hygienic type stuff. They keep dropping these things. Indians come and take it. They think, okay, maybe we've, we've made a statement here. Maybe they'll, they'll recognize us as, you know, those who are responsible for giving these good things and they'll make that association and that will help. And that's a good plan. 
If I were back then, I would think that's a good plan. I'm down for it. But what these men were not expecting were to get down there and they get on the sandy beach there and the tribesmen come out and they, they slaughter them with spears. They kill them. And where the widows could have said, you know what? Enough is enough. They could have lived out the rest of their life mourning and sharing the stories of their husband who gave their lives and nobody would have faulted them. In the Christian community, I seriously doubt anybody would say, why didn't you continue? They still need the gospel. I think we would say, praise the Lord for your husbands because that story, even if they didn't get saved in that tribe, because that story has emboldened others. And the story would have been great right there, but that's not what happened. The women did what? They go, these women, they go and they infiltrate the camp. You got to believe that they're thinking this might mean our death. You know what that is? That's living as a sojourner. Whether death comes to me 30 years from now, whether it comes tomorrow, you know, it's like, come what may, I'm a, I'm a sojourner. They infiltrated the camp and they reached the tribe with the gospel. And if the story that I've read is true, the one that, I don't know if all of them converted, but the story goes that the one that killed Jim Elliot did. He came to Christ. There's a movie, um, I don't know how accurate it is, I think it's pretty accurate, called Into the Spear, if you haven't seen it. Fantastic movie that kind of accurately depicts, I've, I've heard, uh, that, that story. So, And it was Jim Elliot who said these words, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So if we're getting back to the text, Paul's joy was rooted in the fact that although he suffered, because jail wasn't pleasant, all right? This wasn't he's in this cushy spot and he's got cable TV. It wasn't, it was an apartment, sure, but don't think of an apartment that you and I might live in. Don't think of a house that's comfy and cushy and air-conditioned and all of these things. It was still jail. It was still prison. It was still hard. And because Paul wasn't super Christian, I'm not believing that Paul was, you know, this doesn't faze me. It stunk. It was horrible, just like it would be for you or for me. But there's a joy rooted in the gospel that transcends even the greatest of tragedies. And we're not talking some temporal happiness. We're talking a deep-seated joy that doesn't always manifest itself through smiles and bubbly behavior, but that manifests itself in a way that provides hope and confidence in the things that truly matter, no matter what we might face. And I think that's the second reason for Paul's joy. Third reason for Paul's joy, Paul understood clearly the relationship to the gospel and God's relationship to him. He understood clearly his relationship to the gospel and God's relationship to him. Verse 15 says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And he says the, the same, a similar statement in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It has really happened to me. This was the intent. This was the purpose behind this tragedy. What y'all are getting so upset about was all God's glorious unfolding plan to expand the kingdom of God. So we should rejoice. We should celebrate that these things are happening. And Paul recognized that he put here for the defense of the gospel. So Paul's understanding of his relationship to the gospel is this, that he was a sojourner, that he was a traveler, that he was a soldier. And I've already turned that phrase of being a sojourner, and Paul understood that, and I can't, I can't emphasize it enough how important it is that we live this way, that we think this way. 
it's a hard thing to shed because it's not the way our culture goes. It's not, it's not. You know, I, I don't do a good job of this. Hear me saying, I am not good at this. This has been very hard for me thinking through this because I, I'm not a sojourner. So don't, I mean, don't see me as a, I am a hypocrite, but I'm not saying do as I do <laughs> by any stretch. You know, I'm saying do as, as, as the scriptures are clearly revealing. Be a sojourner, you know, be a sojourner. Paul understood his relationship to the gospel as a sojourner, as a conduit, as a catalyst, as a, uh, as a middleman, as a delivery boy. That's what he is. That's what you and I are, by the way. We're delivery boys and girls. We're bringing a message. We're like, hey, this is gonna affect you. I can't make it affect you. God makes it affect you. It's supernatural. I'm not. I'm just the delivery boy. And this is Paul's mentality. He understood his purpose was to be used by God until God was done using him and God took him home. That's it. The beauty of today is it doesn't mean you have to sell your house. It doesn't mean that you have to sell or change your career unless God says so. But the idea is your natural rhythms, whatever you have going on in life, that's where God has you. So you're a sojourner there. You're a sojourner there. Don't, mis- don't misunderstand or misinterpret the text into saying, well, if I'm gonna be a sojourner, I have to board a plane or a boat or walk to go to all these towns and give the gospel. No, no, you're, you're in the 21st century, okay? So, um, and things are different. So you use your life and your natural rhythms unless God's calling you to be in an adobe hut in Africa, unless he's calling you to be in the trenches in a Muslim country fighting for your life, you know, or fighting for the expansion of the gospel and the kingdom of God. But Paul also understood his relationship to God and God's relationship to him. And he saw that God is the sovereign designer of Paul's life. Paul doesn't question that. There's no question as to what Paul believed regarding the sovereignty of God because it's written throughout the pages of Scripture, especially the New Testament, which is what he wrote the most of. He says in Colossians 1.17, Paul says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's a statement of sovereignty. He says in Ephesians, God works all things after the counsel of his will. It's a statement of God's sovereignty. Paul writes in Romans, he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He speaks of God in relationship to Pharaoh and what God did back in the book, uh, back, in, uh, back in the Exodus. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show you my power or show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he will harden whomever he wills. This is a hard text to digest for a lot of people. But whether or not you really understand the ins and outs of this text, what is very clear is that Paul says, you know what? God's in control of all these things. God is moving and willing and doing according to his good purpose. And I'll do good not to challenge that. I'll do better to just hop on for the ride and do whatever he tells me to do because God's got all of these things planned out. It's, it's, it's the simple version of that. But all of these texts are texts that Paul affirms the sovereignty of God. So there's no question as to what Paul's theology was. And that theology is important to understand when you're considering Paul in the jail cell and why he would have joy in writing. Because as a sojourner, he says, I might make it out of this jail and land in another one. I might make it out of the frying pan and into the fire. But that's okay. 
That's okay as long as the gospel is advanced because I'm just a delivery boy. There will be another delivery boy. There were those who were timid. There were those who were fearful and now they're emboldened and they're taking the gospel. So guess what? If I stay here riding in this little jail cell, then that's fine. That's fine because it's not about the messenger. It's about the message. And that's the mentality of a sojourner. And that's reason number three that Paul had so much joy in the way that he wrote. is that he understood clearly his relationship to the gospel and to God's relationship to him. Final one, reason number four, he knew that the gospel's effectiveness had nothing to do with man, but everything to do with the message, which I've said several times already, but let me read to you a few things. This text here is revealing to us something important. It reveals to us that the power of the gospel has nothing to do with our eloquence, with our ability to compile a cogent presentation and argument, not that we don't try to be clear, If people reject or scoff at the message, it's not because the messenger did a poor job of delivering. I have a very dear pastor friend who witnesses to anything and everything that moves. And when someone rejects the gospel that he's giving them, he loses sleep at night. And I'm not talking about the the, the souls of men. I mean, yes, grieve and desire and want to see the souls of men transformed by the gospel, absolutely. But his struggles are... Maybe I wasn't clear enough. It's my fault that they didn't receive. And this is a man that I respect to the hilt. Great, great, godly, godly man, brilliant man, professor, great, great man, but he really struggles with that or did some years ago. And I would say to him, man, then you're, you're, you're making it about the messenger, about how clear you can be. Now, don't get me wrong. You can't come up and say, you know, talk about, you know, nonsensical stuff. You know, I'm not saying, you know, uh, somebody who doesn't understand the gospel at all should go out and just start sharing the gospel. I mean, understand what the gospel is, but it's not some impossible theological construct. You know, you're a sinner. (laughs) You're a sinner. You need Jesus. Sin into the world and it wrecked everything and it separated us from God. It separated us. We know this story. We can tell stories. Everyone in here has told a story. This has happened. Adam and Eve broke God's law. They said, don't do this. They did it. They're separated from God. They needed salvation because they became sinners. Everybody needed salvation. God grants salvation in Jesus to all who believe. And you need it. And your kids need it. And your parents and grandparents need it because all have fallen short. Because all have been separated because of their iniquities. And the scripture says it over and over again, and it's easy. Was that super eloquent? No, no. I've told you before, I shared with this woman one day, I was a young seminarian, and I was so focused on saying all the right things, going through all my verses and getting it right. It was so important to me that I was clear, that I was eloquent, and if I'm honest, that I won the argument. And God humbled me on that day, as he has very often, and I walk up to this woman and I can't even articulate anything. I mean, I get the gospel out, but it's a train wreck. I am in sweat. I mean, I'm sweating, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it's not because it's hot, but because I was so nervous. And I don't know if you've ever been on the spot and you, your mind gets discombobulated and you can't think straight and you start feeling your brow sweat. Maybe some of you turn red on your neck or something like that. It's, it's a mess. That's how I felt. I just wanted it to be over. I'm like, let me just get this out so I can leave. Whatever happens to this woman happens to this woman. I just can't do this. And I'm about to leave, and she says, I need Jesus. I'm like, shut up. (laughs) 
I didn't say that to her, but that's what I'm thinking. I mean, I, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, that's nonsense. <laughs> but I wasn't eloquent. I didn't have to be because it's not about the messenger. It's about the message. That's a reason for joy. It's that the gospel's effectiveness has nothing to do with man, but everything to do with the message. The danger in thinking otherwise is that man somehow plays a role in the supernatural aspect of gospel transformation. And that's a dangerous place to be. But this should be a good, this should be a source of good news for everybody in this room. Because none of us are God's gift to brilliance or God's gift to theology. All of us are students. Some of us are in different places as students of the Bible. We're all just like Paul. We're sojourners, and we have a message that has changed us that God will use to change the world, but it has to be spread throughout the world. And so here's how I will close with application. So what does all this mean for you? I think the application was kind of obvious or kind of clear throughout, but let me make a few statements. This text means that the deepest and truest of hopes is found exclusively in the riches of Jesus, i.e. the gospel. But saying that, also means that it's probably true that some of us allow our circumstances to determine our joy. So here's one of the major threads in this text. Here's a takeaway. We can have joy no matter the circumstance as long as the circumstance itself doesn't determine your joy. Let me read that again. We can have joy no matter the circumstance. Paul's in prison. He has joy. So no matter the circumstance, cancer, we can have joy Not, oh, I feel great, I'm happy, temporal, but a joy that's deep, that's meaningful, that's true, that's hopeful, that's born out of the supernatural. We can have that kind of joy no matter the circumstance as long as the circumstance doesn't determine our joy. If your circumstance determines your joy, then when you are incarcerated for the gospel, the gospel will not give you joy because your circumstance is what's determining determining that joy and not the gospel. Because things so easily dissatisfy us Our circumstances so easily dissatisfy us. So you don't find the job that you really want. You don't find the joy that you, you don't find joy in your current paycheck. You don't find joy in your colleagues. You don't find joy in your relationships. You were not meant to find joy in those things. So I would say to you, congratulations for stating the obvious. You don't find joy in things that aren't Jesus. That's the point. You're not supposed to. Do I find joy and happiness in my marriage to my wife? Because it says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Yeah, but it's a different situation than the joy that I find in Jesus. My wife doesn't fill my cup. I don't fill her cup. I might fill it up a little bit more, but I'm just saying. So I'm just kidding. She's, she's not in here, so I'm bold, right? I'm bold. I've been emboldened, right? Don't, and don't tell her that, please. So... Uh, so the, 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 the point is that as good as my relationship and as much as I love my wife, as much as you love your, your new child, that's not the source of our joy because it's not eternal, it's not lasting. People lose children. People lose their spouses. The things we put identity in, we lose those. My identity's in my job, and what if I can't use my hands and work anymore? What if I lose my voice and I can't preach anymore? My identity's wrapped up in that. It can be stripped and taken away from me, and if my joy is determined by my circumstances, then I've got problems because those were not meant to be my joy. 
we must be careful not to blur the lines between our eternal destination and our lives as sojourners. In the name of wisdom, we save our money, we set up IRAs, etc. We dream and plan for futures that may or may not come. We invest time and effort into creating a living experience that is ideal and most palatable to us, and these are absolutely fine, but if they detract from the true task of the saint or they determine our joy, then we're not seeing the riches of Jesus. We're missing the gospel. And if we don't see the riches of Christ, you will not see the preciousness of the gospel, and consequently, you will not experience the fullness of joy. Paul experienced the fullness of joy, not because of his circumstances, but what was happening despite his circumstances. It's the gospel that drives us because the gospel is where our true identity is found and no one can take that away. The gospel drives us to joy because in the gospel are the promises that sustain us through dissatisfaction and the lackluster existence we endure as sojourners. And my final statement is this, We need to resign ourselves to the reality that we are truly sojourners passing through. And if we can get to that point, and the gospel is truly enough, and the advancement of the gospel is truly enough to bring us joy, then it changes everything. It changes everything. We're here to fight for truth, glorify the Father, and go home. And I'm married, and I'm gonna take my kids along the way. I pastor church, and Lord willing, I'll take the church along the way. But our purpose is to fight for the gospel, fight for truth, glorify God, and go home. Because we're not meant for here. Let's pray together and we'll be done.